continuing on in Mark. So we're just going section by section through the Gospel of Mark, and we land today on Mark 7, verse 24 through 30. Let's read it, and then we'll pray. Mark 7, verse 24. This is where we're at today, 24 through 30. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, Go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. I'm going to take a second to pray. Second uh, Timothy 4.17 says, uh, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And then he gives you two reasons that went down. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me that the message might be preached fully through me. That's on my end. And that all the Gentiles might hear, and that's on your end. So the fact that the Word being preached fully and the hearers hearing the Word has everything to do with the Lord stood with me. The Lord's here. So I'm going to pray that the Lord would be here with us and strengthen us. God, we need your help as we look at your Word now. Lord, you stood with Paul and you strengthened him and your word went forward and it went into the ears of people and they heard you, God. They heard you with their spiritual ears. And I just pray, God, that you would do that now. Allow me, Lord, in the ability that you supply to preach your word. And I pray for every person here, God, under the, under the hearing of your word, God, that, that you would open hearts God, you would convict and challenge souls. You would encourage and build up the saints. Thank you so much, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 7. Now, we're going to just dive right into verse 24, okay? So we're just going to go verse by verse through it, and you see that on your sheet, the way it's laid out. And we're just going to walk through this. So starting off in verse 24, uh, this is Jesus leaving Galilee where he's been for so long. And heading into Gentile territory. It's like it kind of starts off by giving us a, a placement. It's giving us a location where Jesus goes. Okay, So look at verse 24. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. So we've got Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, it says. That's outside of Israel. That's into the territory of the Gentiles. And what I mean by Gentile... Is anyone who's not a Jew, when you hear Gentiles, nations, those, those are words that should come to your mind. Nations, Gentile, us, we're Gentiles. So outside of Israel, he's going to territory of the Gentiles in Tyre and Sidon. This is a very ungodly place, a very pagan place. If you don't believe that, just look up the words Tyre and Sidon all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, God threatened destruction on them. In the New Testament, Jesus compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Very wicked place. And Jesus goes in that direction. Now, why does Jesus withdraw to this Gentile region? And I'll give you a couple reasons. One, you know, they've been seeking rest since chapter 6, verse 31. Chapter 6, verse 31, they were going to get rest. They were going on like a vacation in some ways. And when they got there, 20,000 plus people showed up and they had to serve them. So it didn't work. So they're still looking for rest. So they're going outside of Israel into this Gentile territory. Also, they may be going there for their safety. If you remember the section before this that Dustin taught on last week, verse 1 through 23, he just looked at the religious leaders of his times and he said, hypocrites. And he said, as Dustin would say, he took them to the woodshed. So he just did that, and now maybe in such a way it's not time for him to die just yet, so he goes up into Gentile territory. Also, let me give so rest, protection. Let me give you another. This is a bigger picture reason. Why does Mark include this right here? Okay, so these events are included in a certain way, written to a certain people. Why does Mark include this right here? And I want to give you kind of a, a bigger picture. I just want to mention this briefly. The reason why he mentions it right here, he's headed into Gentile territory, is because Jesus is the global Savior. He's not just a Savior of the Jews. He's a worldwide Savior. And right here we've got him going to the Gentiles. Now this, gets, this is seen a lot, uh, a lot more clearly as you look at the context around this passage. So let me just kind of say a few things to, to try to get you into the context. If you read from Mark 1 all the way to Mark 6, he's been almost the whole time in Galilee. This is where most of his ministry was done in Galilee. So he's in Galilee doing his labors, laboring for the Lord, preaching the gospel, healing people, casting out demons in Galilee. Then in chapter 6, verse 53 through 56, right at the end of chapter 6, you get like this wrap up. He's wrapping it up. It's a summary. This is kind of the end of his Galilean ministry. And he's getting ready to head through the rest of this book. He's getting ready to head into Gentile territory. And then the book is going to peak in chapter 8. I mean, it's just going to peak with them saying, I believe you are the Son of God. You're going to see the disciples saying that. And then the next course of the book is, is Jesus heading toward the cross. So you're kind of approaching a peak here. And what's the last thing he does before he gets to that peak? He's headed into Gentile territory. So in, so in the next section, after he wraps it up at the end of chapter 6, chapter 7, verse 1 through 23, which is what Dustin taught, is Jesus... Uh, coming down hard on some old Jewish traditions. Okay, that's fitting, right? And then in the passage we're in today, he goes to Tyre and Sidon to Gentile territory. And then the passage next week, which will be the next section after what we're in now, he'll go around into the capitalists into Gentile territory. He's still there, Gentile areas, okay, the nations. And then you get to chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, and it's interesting. You get this miracle, and it's a very similar miracle to which has already been taught in here from Mark. And it's a miracle of Jesus taking a little bit of resources and feeding 4,000 plus people. And he just feeds these people from just a few pieces of bread and a few fish. And we've already heard that, right? Why would he mention it again in chapter 8, verse 1 through 10? Because this time it's Gentiles. So this thing is moving out toward the Gentiles. So if you take that idea, if you take this Gentile-focused section, and add to the fact that this book, the book of this gospel of Mark, is written mainly to a Gentile audience. Which we, we spoke about that in the introduction of this book. It's mainly written to a Gentile audience. You have a point, a strong point that Mark wants to put in front of your eyes, which is Christ Jesus is a global Savior. He's a worldwide Savior. He's a Savior to the Gentiles like us, to the nations and even the unreached nations of the world. John Stott said this about this section of Scripture. He said, the lesson is about the mission. The worldwide mission 
of the church. So the idea here is Christ Jesus is the global Savior. He will save a remnant of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue on this earth. Psalm 46 verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Quick side note here. Just a side note. He's a global Savior, and this is the reason our Great Commission our great commission is in Matthew 28, 19, is to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Notice our commission is not make as many disciples as possible. Although we do that, right? We want to make as many disciples as possible. But what is the commission? Make disciples of all the nations. If it was just make as many disciples as possible, we would only go to the most fruitful places in this world and we would only preach the gospel there. Why do we pinpoint our focus in on unreached people groups in this church? Why do we do that? Because the commissions make disciples of all the nations. Why? Because Christ Jesus is a global Savior and He's redeeming people from every single nation, tribe, and tongue on this earth. Now back to the passage. So he's a global savior. He's headed into Gentile territory in verse 24. And I want you to see this. This is not a short trip. Let me say this quickly. This is not a short trip, okay? If you look at the distances from Capernaum where he spent most of his time, it's about 50 miles north to Sidon, excuse me, to Tyre, I believe, and another 20 miles north to the other town, Tyre, Sidon. One of, I got them kind of mixed up there, but one of those. But it's 50 and then 20 miles on foot. And then to move around to the Decapolis is 120 to 150 miles moving around to the Decapolis on foot. This took some time. This took weeks, maybe even months. This is not a short trip. Now, we know that Jesus, if you look at the phrase right there in verse 24, it says, He entered into a house and wanted no one to know it. He wanted to be there alone with His disciples. Jesus is seeking to be alone with His disciples. But it says, what does it say next? but he could not be hidden. Don't you love that? Jesus could not be hidden. The global, global Savior cannot be hidden. He can't escape notice. That's who Jesus is. Now, I want, you, I want you to see this. There are very, very few things. It just said Jesus could not be hidden. There's very, very few things that the Bible says Jesus can't do. He can't lie. Because He's faithful. And this says He can't be hidden. Why? Because He's too glorious. Christ Jesus can't be hidden. How do, you, how do you disguise divine glory? How do you disguise divine mercy, divine power? How do you disguise that? And the answer is you don't. Jesus, even though He's, he's veiled in flesh, His glory cannot be hidden. Now why does it say He can't be hidden? Go with me to the next verse. Chapter 7, verse 25 and 26 is going to speak about this woman that he meets that found him. He could not be hidden. Now, before we read those verses, I want you to think about something. What you're about to see, because we're, we're about to dig into this lady's life, okay? The Syrophoenician lady. And before we read these two verses, I want to say this. What you're about to see is amazing faith in her evidenced by a, a, a pursuit of Christ that is relentless. Okay, you're about to see faith in her, this evidence by pursuit of Christ, this, this pleading, this persistence. She just keeps coming to Him over and over again. And you're going to see faith in her evidence by persistent pleading with Christ. That's what we're about to look at, okay? She pleads with Jesus relentlessly. Uh, Jesus does not look at her and say, Oh woman, great is your prayer life. 
Okay? She pleads with him relentlessly over and over again. That's what we're about to see. And if you look at the count, Matthew 15, at the end of it, Jesus looks at her and says, Oh woman, great is your faith. You see that? Faith evidenced by what? Persistent, relentless, pleading with Christ Jesus, calling on God. So whatever Jesus saw in this woman, whatever he saw in her, he concluded that's great faith in that woman, okay? So I want you to see that, that real genuine faith is evidenced by relentless pursuit of and pleading with Christ. And I want us to imitate that. So I want us to get a view into her life because I want us to imitate it. Now, this truth, this truth that, that faith, great faith is evidenced by persistent pleading, relentless pleading with Christ is seen in another place in Scripture. Hold your place here. Turn with me to Luke 18. Luke 18, we're going to start in verse 1. What I want you to see is great faith is evidenced by persistent pleading of Christ. Chapter 18, verse 1. Then He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. They always ought to pray and not lose heart. So the parable we're about to look at I'm about to describe to you is about what? Always praying and not losing heart. This is persistence. This is relentless praying. And then you get this parable, and it's about this woman, this widow, who comes to this judge to get justice, and the judge denies her. And so she just keeps coming and coming and coming. If you look at verse 5, the the judge finally says, Because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Some versions say, I'm going to answer this lady. Why? Because she's going to wear me out. It says, wear me out. Some versions get violent. They say, she's going to beat me. This is like violent prayer life is what we're talking about here, okay? Always ought to pray, not lose heart. And then when Jesus makes the application, in verse 6, He says, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge His own elect who cry out day and night to Him? though he bears long with him. I tell you that he will avenge him speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find, and you think he's going to say persistent prayer life, what does he say? Will he really find faith on earth? Faith. Faith in a person, faith in this passage, faith in the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, evidenced by continual coming. She wore me out. Wearing God out at His throne again and again and again, relentless praying. Okay, go. You can start flipping back to the passage, Mark chapter seven. I want you to see that this idea, what I'm giving to you, is very important. In this culture, faith, the idea of what faith is, is radically distorted. And so, what we're seeing right here is a little bitty piece of of helping us see what faith is, and faith is evidenced by this. This kind of prayer, okay, it's very important for us to see that, that when you really believe He's powerful, you keep coming. When you really believe He's gracious and merciful, you keep coming. When you really believe that He loves you, then you keep coming and you keep coming and you keep coming. Let's read the verses. Verse 25 and 26. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about Him, and she came and fell at His feet. The woman was a Greek or Gentiles, what that is. The woman was a Gentile, Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon 
out of her daughter. So what do we know about this lady? Who is this lady? We know she's a Gentile. She's a Syrophoenician. She wasn't born in Israel. She lives in a very pagan, ungodly region. Now, how does this woman know about Jesus? How does she know to come to Christ? And if you remember back in Mark chapter 3, verse 8, when we came through that section, Jesus is up by the Sea of Galilee, and He's just proclaiming the Word of God, and He's casting out demons, and He's healing people, and He's there. And at that time, people begin to gather up around Jesus from all over the place, from Jerusalem, from Galilee, even, even up into Tyre and Sidon in this region where she's at right now. People begin to gather around Christ. So maybe she was one of them. Or maybe somebody from that group that came down from Tyre and Sidon to see Jesus, maybe, maybe they actually told her about Jesus. We don't know, but she knows something about Christ. If you look at the account in Matthew 15, okay, the same story, same account in Matthew 15, it says when she came to Jesus, she said this. She said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. So what did she know about Jesus? That he could cast out demons? She knew that. She calls him Lord. She says, you're my master. That word means you're my owner. Don't ever let that word grow old to you. Lord, master, my owner, my possessor. That's what she says about him. And then this gets really specific. She says, son of David. How'd she know about that? She's not from the lineage of Israel. She's not from those people. How did she know that God promised David of Israel that there was going to be a king that came through his lineage that was going to be king eternal, king forever? How did she know and either she was there whenever they came down or she had heard about it, but she knew some things about the Savior. Now, I want you to see that this woman from this passage is very desperate. She's a very desperate woman. It says right here in verse uh, 26, it says, she came, excuse me, verse 25, she came and fell at his feet. She's pleading with him for help. She's desperate. She comes and she falls at his feet. She's desperate. Desperate people. They're characterized by brokenness and weeping, humility, heart worship. And this is what's going on with this woman. She's falling down at his feet, desperate before him. Now, why was she desperate? Why was this woman desperate? And it says right there that she had a young daughter. And this young daughter, see if you can put yourself in her shoes. Her young daughter had been possessed by an unclean spirit. Her young daughter was demon-possessed. Can you put yourself in her shoes? Can you see why she's desperate? She's a very desperate woman. Now this, that little phrase that he had, her young daughter, Satan and his minions had actually possessed her, that ought to make you hate Satan. And you should hate Satan. He does that. He goes, unclean spirits going after a young girl. Genesis chapter 3 said he went after a man's wife. Don't you hate him? Don't you hate Satan? He's called the father of lies. He's called the father of murder. He is completely content. Satan is completely content and happy with the most horrible atrocities you can even think of. Rape as a war strategy in Congo? Satisfied with that. Don't you hate him? Don't you hate Satan? 23,000 babies murdered last week in the USA, limb from limb, just ripped apart. Don't you hate him? Don't you hate Satan? He hates children. He hates your children. He hates my children. He would not think twice about doing them harm. Don't you hate Satan? He wants to destroy you. He, he wants to ruin your pursuit of advancing the kingdom of God. He wants to hinder you. This verse ought to make you hate him. Praise God that Jesus reigns over Satan like a dog on a leash. 
1 John 3, 8 says this, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Praise God. That He might destroy the works of the devil. Christ Jesus, the King over all principalities and powers. But this woman was very desperate. Can you feel her pain? As her young daughter is suffering under demonic influence. Now I also want you to see this. So she's desperate. Also this woman is very persistent. She's a very persistent woman. Look at verse 26 at the very end. It says, And she kept asking him. She kept asking him. Some of you have heard say, She was begging him. She kept asking. She's begging him. Now the verb tense there shows that she was relentless. That she was very, very persistent. She's just coming to him again and again. And I want you to see a picture of that. Okay, I want you to see this woman just persistent. She just kept asking him. Hold your place and go to Matthew 15. Matthew 15, the same account over there is going to give us a, a glimpse into her persistence. Into her relentlessness. She just kept asking him. Verse 21 through 28. Now you're going to see this happen in four stages where she does something, Jesus does something. She does something, Jesus does something. Four stages. Stage one, verse 21. Jesus went out from there, departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. You see, it's the same story. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her, not a word. So surely she would just leave then, right? She came to him. She's crying out. She's screaming out, have mercy on me, O Lord. And the Lord ignores her for a time. Surely she would just leave, right? What about stage two? And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So stage two, she keeps coming. And she keeps coming. So much so that the disciples almost get annoyed. And the disciples say, Jesus, you got to send this lady away. That's how much she's just coming. She's crying out. She's screaming out after us as this is the way this is worded here. And then Jesus still doesn't look at her and say anything. Instead, he looks at his disciples and says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So surely she walks away, right? There's my answer. And the answer is no. Stage three. Then she came and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. So she's still coming. And she's bowed down before him saying, Lord, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. And finally he responds to her. But when he responds, it's not the response she wanted. At least not maybe what she expected. Stage four. She just keeps coming. Verse 27. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. Now, doesn't it sound like when Jesus gave that parable in Luke 18, this is a parable that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And like this woman just wearing out a judge, doesn't it seem like he had her in mind? I mean, it's like, she, it's like he had her in mind during that time. She just continually coming, wearing him out. Go back with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Now, I want to talk for a second 
about Jesus' uh, shocking words here. A lot of people will say these are some shocking words. Why would Jesus say what He said in Mark chapter 7, verse 27? And I want you to understand the parable, understand the analogy here. Let's read verse 27. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Okay? Now I want you to see that these words from Christ are not unloving, are not meant to be insulting or unloving. I want you to see that, okay? And here's one way I want you to see it. The normal word that would be used for a Gentile in a derogatory manner, dog, that's true, that happens. But that exact word is like a street mutt, Okay, that's not the word employed here. Jesus actually softens the word on dog, and that's why it's translated little dog or like a puppy. Okay, Now some of you are like, well, that doesn't do it for me. <laughs> this still sounds insulting to me. All right, well, let me give you another layer of that, okay? Here's another layer. This is actually an analogy. It's a parable meant to make a point to this lady, okay? It's, a, it's an analogy. It's a parable. It's not derogatory uh, name calling, okay? So here's what I want you to see. Jesus' ministry on this earth was to, not to the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's true, okay? And this analogy that we see right here is meant to help her see that his actions, Jesus' actions going to the Jews first, is not mean-spirited, but righteous, because God has ordained it that way since, since before time began. That it would go Jews first and then also to the Gentiles. You see it all over the Bible. You see it in the Old Testament. Paul picks up the theme in Romans and says it over and over again. To the Jew first and also to the Greeks. So this parable is meant to help her see my actions going to Jews first is righteous. It's a righteous action. It's not me neglecting Gentiles. Okay. So let's think about it. Here's the parable. In the parable he says it is not good. Some of your versions say it is not right. It's not righteous. It's not good to do what? Take the children's food and throw it to the little dogs. That makes sense, right? Mama sits the family down at the table and the, the kids are sitting there starving and she takes the food and gives it to the dogs. That's not right, right? That ain't right. And that's the parable. That's the analogy. And this is what he said. This is the point he's trying to get across. For him, Jesus is saying, for him to go to the Gentiles first, which is against the God-ordained order and not to the, and just skip over the Jews would not be right. It'd be just as bad as a, as a mama feeding the dog before her own child. So he's showing by this analogy that his actions going to the Jews first are righteous actions because this is the order set up by God. Here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that his ministry is not for Gentiles. Or as if he is neglecting Gentiles. That's not what he's saying. The Old Testament disproves this, right? Isaiah 49.6 says, I will give you, Christ, as a light to the Gentiles. Jesus' own life dis disproves this. At the, at the end of his life on earth, he would say this, Go make disciples of all nations, all the Gentiles. And even his own words right here, look at verse 27 again more carefully. Let the children be filled what? First, even his own words say first. This is not about the neglect of the Gentiles like us, the nations. This is about order. This is about God-ordained order. So the point of Jesus' words is to show to her that his actions going to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles is righteous. It's a righteous act. Now, it does seem like he's been pretty hard on her though, right? Everybody agree with that? He ignores her for a time. And after he ignores her for a season... Uh, he seemingly denies her. He seemingly 
rejects her. So what's with this? Why does Jesus seem like he's being hard on her right here? Why does it seem that way? It's not because he lacks compassion, right? We've seen it all through the book of Marty. I mean, there's unclean, not just unclean Gentiles, but unclean lepers have come to him. And with compassion, he's reached out his hand and touched them and healed them. And it says he's full of compassion. Now, it's not that he wasn't sure if he was going to answer her eventually, right? Jesus is all-knowing. He knows everything. There's nothing that he does not know. So why does Jesus deal with her this way? And I'll say to you to consider that he's testing her faith. Did you know God did that? Do you really believe that God tests faith? Listen to James 1 verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Did you know that? God tests faith. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, You have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's testing her faith. Did you know the Lord does this? Now, why would the Lord be testing her faith right here? And we know for one, it's for her own good, right? Because that verse we just read says the testing your faith that leads to your faith being to the praise and glory of God in the end. And also he's testing our faith for us to see. Do you see that? We're getting a vision right here of faith and of persistent prayer. And for us to see, we need to see what real faith looks like. We've got to understand genuine faith and her faith evidenced by relentless praying. Now, this is something I want to say for a second, okay? I want to just frame this up. God has chosen, you think about this, God has chosen that He would act and move in response to relentless praying. Now, is God sovereign and all-determining and all-knowing? Yes. But He has chosen that He would be moved. He would be moved by His people who pray. Now, how do these fit together? I don't know, you know? How do these fit together? He's sovereign, and yet He's moved by those who pray. Now I want you to think about this. I want you to beware. Beware of sleepy sovereignty that affects your prayer life. Sleepy sovereignty that affects your prayer life. So prayer life's a weak prayer life that says, oh, that's just because I have faith in the sovereignty of God. Not true, right? Because what does it say? Faith in the sovereignty of God produces what? Relentless praying, not weak praying. So beware of sleepy sovereignty and its effects on your prayer life. The Bible does not say you do not have because God is sovereign and He wants you to have it. The Bible says you do not have because you do not ask. Beware of that. Now, God's taking this woman through a test of faith. How will she respond? Go to verse 28. How is this lady going to respond? And she answered and said to Him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Now, what kind of response does she have? And I, want to, I want you to see three things about her response here. She has a humble response to Jesus. She just accepted her title as puppy, as little dog. She just accepted. She, even the little dogs get to eat the crumbs from under the table. She reminds me of Mephibosheth. You remember him? He's in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. He falls prostrate before King David, and King David actually blesses him and says, you can eat with me at my table. And what does Mephibosheth say? He says, what is your servant that you should look on such a, such a dead dog as I? And listen to this humility. You know anybody that 
assumes that kind of humility? Is that characteristic of humility that you see in this lady and it pleases Christ? Does it, is that a high characteristic in your mind? Humility? Also, number two, she has a faith-filled response. You remember at the end of this interaction, according to Matthew 15, Jesus is going to look at her and say, Oh woman, great is your faith. It's literally, you've got mega faith. Great is your faith, she, he says to him there. So faith is the inward status of her heart, and it's clearly evidenced by her persistent pleading with him for help. It is clear that she truly believes that just a few crumbs from Jesus' Jesus's table is able to cast the demon out of her daughter. It's clear that she really believes that just a few crumbs from the Lord's table is more satisfying than all the fancy feasts of the world. She believes this, and she really believes with the Lord. He's the Lord. He's the Son of David, and she believes Him. And you see it in her relentless pursuit, relentless, persistent praying. Now, thirdly, I want you to see her zealous rep- response. She's, got, she's full of zeal. Her zeal here is inspiring. It should be inspiring to us all. She will not give up. She will not be turned away in her pleading with Christ. What a shame it would be to live out the rest of our lives and lack zeal for God and zeal in prayer. What a shame. It reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. King Joash and Elisha, remember that? Elisha told King Joash, he said, I want you to take this bow and arrow. I want you to shoot and strike the gown out the window. And this arrow represents deliverance. And I want you to just take these arrows and shoot it. And he gets up and he's apathetic. And he shoots out the window and he shoots and he just shoots three times. And then Elijah's flaming with anger and he says, you should have shot five or six times. He's just in his apathy. But this woman is not apathetic. She strikes the gown again and again and again. And when she's she's cried out to Jesus and it seems like it is bore zero fruit, she then says this, yes, Lord, even the little dogs eat from from the children's crumbs. She's relentless. Do you see this? In Romans chapter 12, Paul wrote about something and this woman lived it out before he ever wrote it. Paul wrote this. He said, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. That word fervent is bowling over. Be bowling over in spirit. So, how many of us today lack these characteristics in our life? Desperation, brokenness towards God, like the Syrophoenician lady. Humility, towards God and towards other persistence and zeal and faith and prayer. May her life be a rebuke and a challenge and encouragement to us. Verse 29. Let's look how Jesus answers her desperate plea. Verse 29. Then He said to her, For this saying go your way, for the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when He had come to her, when He had come to her house, When she had come to her house, excuse me, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. So Jesus does two things here. He rewards her faith and He he just displays His power and glory over all the spiritual realm. Can't you see it? Can't you see this woman saying that? And then Jesus, maybe with a smile on His face, says, Oh woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you have asked. And then she goes home and her daughter has a demon cast out. The test of faith is over. And Jesus gets to do what He loves to do. He gets to reward faith evidenced by relentless praying. One more quick observation before we move into a takeaway, okay? A little observation here. 
When she goes home, she finds what? Her daughter lying on the bed and the demon cast out. I want you to notice something. Jesus did not have to physically go to the the woman and to the demon to cast him out. And Jesus did not even have to speak a word to cast the demon out. I want you to notice that Jesus simply thought the demon out of her. He dominates the demonic realm with his thought life. Awesome. Takeaway. I want you to listen to this. This is very important, okay? Very important. Our Lord is all-powerful, and He is full of compassion. And this lady just partook of His divine power and compassion through desperate, persistent, relentless, passionate prayers. Did you catch that? Is our Lord all-powerful and compassionate? Absolutely He is. And this lady just partook of that through relentless praying, desperate praying. Now, can you, can you partake of His all power, His his power, His compassion? Can you partake of that through your faith-filled prayers? So let me ask the question. How is, based off this, how is your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Do you frequent the secret place of God to get alone with Him in prayer? Do you do that? How's your prayer life? Listen to this quote from a guy named Samuel Chadwick. had a big impact on Leonard Ravenhill. He said this, The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil and our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. So how's your prayer life? We ought to be encouraged. We ought to be challenged and encouraged by this woman's desperation, by her persistence and pleading with Christ. I want you to notice that she had a burden. You see the burden that she had? Do you know that language of burden? It's in the Bible. Paul said he had a burden that caused him to groan. Do you have a burden? Okay, she had a burden. And let me give you... Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burdens on the Lord and He'll sustain you. So many of us, I would say, don't understand that verse. And it's not because we don't know how to cast cast them on the Lord. It's because we have no burden. She had a burden in prayer. Do we carry things with pain and grief? Do we understand the heart of God? Leonard Ravenhill used to say this. He used to say, you know why revival doesn't come to your church? Because you're willing to live without it. Did you hear that? You're willing to live without it. He's saying, where's the burden for these things? There's no real burden for lost souls to be saved. There's no real burden for holiness. There's no real burden for a move of God. And therefore, we just sink into prayerlessness. And prayerlessness is a sin to be repented of according to Sam. You remember that? He said, he said, uh, it, far be it from me to sin, sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Prayerlessness is a sin to be repentant of. This woman had a burden. She was desperately burdened over the welfare over her, over, of her daughter. You see that? She's desperately burdened. Now, don't you think that we should pray? We should ask God, God, give us, just give us your heart in these matters. God, give us the burdens that you have. Or like the song, I hear so many people singing the song, break our hearts for what breaks yours. 
Don't you think we should pray things like that? Like, Lord, I remember reading about you and you wept over Jerusalem. I saw you weeping over Jerusalem. Give me a heart like that, oh God. Give me a burden. And this woman had a burden that led her to desperate, persistent pursuit of Christ. She was like Hannah of old. Remember Hannah? Chapter 1, 1 Samuel. It says the Lord had closed her womb. And she begins to cry out to God. And listen to some of these phrases from her crying out to God. She wept and did not eat because of her burden. In bitterness of soul, it says she prayed because of her burden. She prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And when she ran out of words, it says she spoke from her heart. She just kept speaking from her heart. After the Lord answers her desperate plea, she's coming to the Lord over and over again. And after the Lord answers her with a son, and not only a son, but a prophet that shakes Israel. And after that happens, guess what the next, next chapter says she did? 1 Samuel 2.1 says this, direct quote, and Hannah prayed. She kept praying, worshiping the Lord. Here's this woman in desperate prayer. We've, we, I want to encourage, we have got to repent of coldness, of a lack of any kind of burden, apathy toward Christ, apathy toward the mission. We've got to obtain a deep burden in our soul so that we can pray like Hannah, so we can plead like the Syrophoenician woman. We've got to go after this. Ravenhill said it like this, we experience revival when we cannot live without it. We can't live without it. Hear those words? She had a burden that caused her to violently lay hold of Christ. She's like Jacob. You remember Jacob? Wrestling with God. He said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. God broke his hip and he kept holding on. God himself said, let me go. And he kept holding on. And here you have this Syrophoenician woman. Silence from Jesus does not stop her. Ridicule from the disciples does not stop her. She keeps holding on. She has spiritual violence and she takes the kingdom by force. This should be an encouragement to us. It should be a challenge to us. What about you? Are you spiritually violent in prayer? Are you filled with godly burdens? Are you calling out to the Lord with relentless zeal? I want you to think about it. When you examine the Christianity that's all around you, don't you see the gaping hole? You see the gaping hole all, all throughout the Bible and into church history. If you, just, if you just read about these things, when there's a mighty move of God, what are the people always known for? Desperate, burdens, pleading with Christ. Prayer, their prayer lives are desperate. Now, many parts of the church today, I'll say this. There, there's been many parts of the church an increase in sound doctrine, sound theology, and I praise God for that. But don't you see the hole? Don't you see the gap? We lift ourselves up so often as mighty, mature theologians, and yet somehow, somehow we remain babies in prayer and fasting. Why is that? Many people show up to Sunday morning meetings, but very few people even know of a real prayer meeting. Many people come to Bible studies, but no one wants to pray. There's even a move, there's even a move now of participatory type meetings where everybody just wants to Everybody speaks in the meeting. They want to do that. But when it's time to pray, nobody wants to pray. You know what this means? We love to talk to men more than we love to talk to God. And let's be a little more specific about our church. Okay? I'm so thankful, so thankful to God that I've seen God do something in our midst, that there's been a seriousness over the Bible. There's been a seriousness 
God has given us a seriousness over sound doctrine, sound theology, and over the Bible. But I want to tell us that if we do not repent of sleepy slothfulness in our prayer lives, we will wither up and blow away. Somebody might say, why is that? Let me say this quickly. Somebody might say, why is that? If faith is evidenced by persistent, relentless praying, if that's what it's evidenced by, then what is prayerlessness evidence? What does it show? What does prayerlessness show us? A lack of faith, right? And the only other option is not faith in God, it's confidence in self. And God said, I will not give my glory to another. Prayerless actions, trusting ourselves are no good. Now, I know that some of you have these burdens, okay? So let's, let me turn the corner a little bit. I know some of you have real burdens. Maybe you received burdens from the Lord. Maybe it came through a trial like this Syrophoenician woman. You had this burden on your soul. Or maybe God just shared His heart with you. It's just in your time reading in His Word and growing with Him, He just shared His heart with you. And you have these real burdens. And if you do, I want to encourage you, think about this story. The Lord Jesus was pleased with her persistent cries. So don't stop praying. The Lord Jesus was pleased. He was glorified by her relentless pursuit of Christ. He was glorified by that. Therefore, do not stop praying. Her burden brought forth desperate pleas to God, and her desperate pleas ended in deliverance from God. That parable in Luke 18, we always ought to pray and not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Why would you lose heart? Look at what he did with this lady right here. So here's what I want to tell you. Keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. Keep praying. you got a child that, that you desperately, you got a burden on your soul and you want that child to be saved. Keep praying for the child. Keep praying for your struggling marriage. Keep praying. Keep crying out to God. Keep praying for the brother or sister in Christ who seems like he's moved away from God. Keep praying for satisfaction in Christ alone. Keep praying for the mom or the dad that has cancer and they're lost. Keep praying. Keep crying out to God for conversion of souls. That we'd be able to plant churches in every nation on this earth. Keep praying for these things. Get alone with God often in a secret place. Call on Him. He's merciful. He's gracious. You see this? Did He not prove it at the cross? If He didn't spare His own Son, how would He not also freely in Christ Jesus give us all things? He gave you His Son. He laid, he, he, Christ Jesus laid down His own life on a cross. He died for you. And then you come to God in prayer and you think He wouldn't hear you and love you? Keep praying. He hears you. He's gracious. He's so merciful. Where are the men and women of prayer who will call out to God relentlessly to do mighty things on this earth to shake the world? Where are they at? Are you sick of unbelief? I'm sick of unbelief in my own soul. Are you sick of unbelief in your own soul? Who says that an outpouring of the Spirit of God is only something that we read about in Christian history books? Who said that? Who said that God would not use us to reach every nation, tribe, and tongue on this earth? Who said that God would not use us to impact this city greatly, to turn the city upside down for His namesake? Who said those things? Who will pray? Who will be those men and women who agonize in passionate prayer? This is how God does it, right? It's how God does it. The Scripture says His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on those whose heart is loyal to Him.
So as God's eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth, his eyes land on women like Hannah, praying, relentless praying women like Hannah who birthed prophets who shake Israel. His eyes, they run to and fro. They land on men like Paul. Remember what they said about Paul at the beginning of his walk with God? Behold, he's praying in Acts chapter 9. He's praying, cry out to God. His eyes land on you. Where are the men and women that will stand in the gap? Where are the men and women who will wrestle with God? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would raise up in this church, raise up in our church, Lord, a group of men and women with heavy burdens, God, burdens that you give us, God, that we can cast on you. God, I pray that you would just let us, just, just let us, just give us a part of your heart, Lord. Let us feel the way you feel toward things. God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. God, I pray that you would raise up in this church a group of, of interceders, Lord. A group of men and women who pray relentlessly and seek you, God. And not, and not only out of duty, God, I pray that you would do it out of delight, that we, you would raise up a group of people that love to get along with you in prayer. God, I pray that you would help us through the times of not even wanting to go and get along with you, Lord. Of not wanting to be in the secret places. God, help us. Help us to turn. Change our hearts, God. Thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.